Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, it's the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Have you been, Danny? Oh wait, I, I was going to interrupt you. How have you been, Helen? Me? Do you, I get to go first? You always ask me, and I always feel bad. I feel selfish. I'm like, fuck. She's asking me how I am again. How are you, Helen? I am. Um, I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, I've been doing a lot of gardening recently. Oh, fancy. Though we did have, we have had the most Hang unusual. On. Hang on. What? I'm going to give you a gift. Uh, really? Ever since we've been in this studio, yes, um, there's some glowy buttons on the soundboard that Helen likes to push and yes. has never, there's not an appropriate place in a podcast, in a true crime podcast to be able to use these. Yes. My gift to you, Helen, tell me how you are, but narrate it with these sound effects. Okay. I've forgotten what colour is which. This, we're on a journey together. Okay. So I've been out in my garden um, doing the beds, cutting the grass, which has been gorgeous. One would say magical. (laughs) (laughs) Then came my dog and she pooped on my freshly cut lawn. I was angry. She wanted a round of applause, though, because she didn't do it in the downstairs bathroom. But she was sad because I was mad. And that is the story. <laughs> the end. Oh, they keep going. They keep going. That was nice. Well, how have you been? Oh, they're still going. Maybe the button's stuck. Please don't be stuck. Oh, no, I think that oh, that's it, an extra long sound Whatever effect. they were laughing at was really funny. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. That definitely added, like, prime broadcasting right here. Yeah, on the go, on the decks, like a DJ. It was, that was wonderful. <laughs> We're going to have to wait 10 hours for this one to finish now. <laughs> How have you been? <laughs> yeah, I'm all good, man. I'm having a midlife crisis. Another one? Just about how um, I've just become really responsible, and I don't know when this has happened. I was parked in a in a in a shopping like in an Asda car park, but it's not just Asda. There's like a gym and there's Costa and stuff. But the bit of the car park I was in said for mm-hmm. Asda customers, and I just wanted to go to Greg's across the way. And I thought, oh fuck, I'm parked in the wrong bit. Am I going to get in trouble? And I went to Asda instead because I didn't want to get wrong in the parking. Who does that? Yeah, who does that? Me. Why? What are you afraid of? Everything. Literally everything. You need to learn and live a little bit. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, we're here for a reason. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the Night Stalker, who is Richard Ramirez. You know when we've said about cases that are so extreme, they almost don't seem real? This is one of those, so brace yourself. I'm quite excited. I did watch the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix a couple of years ago when it came out, and I have forgotten nearly all of it. But I do remember it stopped me from sleeping for a little bit. Okay. So. Well, you grab some melatonin gummies and because you'll probably need them. I'm going to need them. Okay, cool. Let's set the scene. 
It's August 1985, and California detectives have finally discovered the identity of a serial killer who the media has dubbed the Night Stalker. The ruthless serial killer has been terrorising the state of California for 14 months, claiming at least 13 victims. He was a psychotic, paranoid, Satan-worshipping killer who derived his pleasure from a combination of lust and violence. After getting off a bus, the 25-year-old man is recognised from a picture in the newspaper and a group of locals take it upon themselves to chase after him. When they finally catch him, they beat him up. The pile is so big, he has to be rescued by two police officers. This one cop looks real close. He's, Jesus, it's the Night Stalker. It's Richard Ramirez. They didn't know it yet, but they had just made the biggest arrest of the decade. If you were going to set out to describe how to make a serial killer and a serial rapist, you could do worse than take Ramirez as your example. He has every possible constituent. Right, so I've got to go back to the start. Richard Ramirez was born on February 29, 1960 in El Paso, Texas to Mexican-born parents. Criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley says Richard's family faced many hardships. He was the youngest of five children and the family had quite a, a kind of turbulent life. So they, they lived in, in several different areas, many of which had quite high levels of industrial pollution. Some of his siblings had been born with birth defects. So this family had an awful lot of, of challenges. That's something that would come to shape Richard's life and those of his siblings. So he hasn't got the best start in life. Author and journalist Geoffrey Wansell also understands the darker aspects of Richard's childhood. His father was a brutal, short-tempered man. There was certainly physical violence. And Richie Ramirez shrank away, if you like, from his father. And he took refuge in the company of a cousin. In 1971... Richard's cousin, Mike, returned home from the Vietnam War. Mike was scarred by the atrocities that he'd seen and committed as a Special Forces Green Beret. He did some really fucked up shit and he was proud of it. So he would boast to Richard about what he'd done to Vietnamese women. So we have a grizzled, damaged Vietnam vet, Mike, and a frail, probably suggestible boy. And Mike proceeds to explain to him the dreadful things he's done to Vietnamese women while in Vietnam. He's tied them to trees, he's raped them, he's beheaded them, he's taken photographs of it. He came home telling stories of this to, to Richard and he would boast about it. So Richard now has a real-life killing machine to look up to and to admire. 12-year-old Richard, he's 12 years old was fascinated by his older cousin. He starts spending a lot of time with his fucked up cousin. He's really impressionable at this age. And so it starts to cement an idea of harming others to feel powerful. And that must have distorted Ramirez's value systems and the way in which he responded to women in general. They became objects. They were not real and they became, how can I put it politely, 
not entirely human. My niece is 12. No, she's 13 now. And I can definitely identify she's at a point in her life where she's really soaking up all the external influences around her, mostly like with her friends. But I can imagine that if at home, if you're at home a lot of the time and you don't really have many friends, whatever's going on in the household is really going to sink in. And and that is actually uh, part of our development as people. That point in your life is is like a really integral part for your development and your interests and how you see the world. So I can see how having his cousin around him at that age, telling him those things, showing him those pictures, like basically, like Liz said, really cementing his his viewpoints. Yeah, I mean, can, like I can remember being 12 and 13 and, you know, when you got to go with your parents somewhere else and they had older kids and being like, wow, look at them older kids and they're talking about boys and they're talking about things and, and I'm going to do that too because I want to be like them because I want people to think that I'm cool and grown up as well. You just sort of like low-key adopt their mannerisms or something like that. That's exactly how yeah. I was because I remember my sister's boyfriend at the time, he was like a kickboxer and I wanted to be a kickboxer and be well art because he, he'd come across as an art man and I thought he was so cool so I tried to be like that didn't work no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry in, in case you've gone this whole time <laughs> shut up in 1973 aged 14 Richard would witness a horrific event that would fully shape his feelings towards women and glorify his cousin forever. One day, cousin Mike and his wife had a huge argument and it ends up with him shooting her in the face. Oh, Young Richard was there when it happened. And his reaction to it is quite interesting because when he talks about it afterwards, he doesn't talk about how he feels seeing this woman murdered in front of him. He talks about it very objectively. He talks about the, the body falling to the floor, about blood spurting out of the, the wound. It's not about feeling disgusted or feeling traumatised or sad. He's, he's just giving a very cold description. And I think this really does tell us what kind of person Ramirez is turning into. Richard's non-reaction to witnessing something so horrific should have been a clear indicator that something sinister was going on inside him. Mike was immediately arrested and sent to a psychiatric unit. So with Mike gone, Richard moved in with his sister and her husband. His personal hygiene habits became non-existent and he became increasingly alienated from society. He's lost his idol, he's lost his role model, and he is basically now starting to, to ruminate and to, to think about the things that he wants to do. So he doesn't look after himself, he's very unkempt, he's dirty, uh, he doesn't wash, and so he becomes even more of an outcast. So he very much gets lost in his own head at this point in time, and he's planning what he's going to do next. Danny, how would you like to try a case of fancy wine for free. Uh, yes, please. I would love to do that. Well, hold on to your hat because the lovely people at Wine 52 are offering exactly that. A case of beautiful wine worth £32 for free! Now, if you don't know, Wine 52 is a wine discovery club that visit a different wine region every month. 
Their wine experts handpick three wines from the best independent wineries in the region to send right to their members' front door. This month's case, the Castilla La Manca case features a light crisp Vadeo with notes of citrus, a full-bodied red and a wine called Ola, which is a fruity and easy-to-drink Sauvignon Blanc. That sounds delicious! And also like something I would never normally buy myself because oh, when I'm in the supermarket and I'm looking at wine, I just tend to play it safe. And I also am a bit like a student and I don't like to spend more than like six or seven pounds on a bottle, which is gross. <laughs> Where's the vinegar? <laughs> I love wine, though. And that's yeah, the thing. That like, why? True. I don't know why I do it because I just love wine. So I might as well get a nicer one. I just buy wine by how pretty the label is. I feel like that's a good, you know. That's such a, I think a lot of people do that though. Yeah, of course. So I like, I like someone to pick a wine for me. But, my, but to be fair, my partner Phil is pretty good at picking wine because he's into his wine. So he goes from being like a lad that loves his beer and blah, to like, um, we're going to go get a full bodied um, red with notes of sapphire and tungsten. <laughs> that sounds dreadful. It does do that. I'm never letting Phil pick my wine for me. Um, I used to work for a wine subscription service, Didn't and you? it's my favourite job that I've ever had. Really? Yeah. Um, with Wine Fifty Two, you can customise your case. So if you're a red drinker like me, you can get all the reds. Or if you're a white wine fan, you can just have white wine. Or if you're not too juicy, you can have both. And did we mention the snacks? They'll send you two tasty snacks in your case to enjoy with the delicious wine. Lovely. Simply go to www.wine52.com forward slash dark and just cover the £5.95 postage costs and uh, you'll receive a case of three carefully selected wines from the Castilla La Manca region of Spain for free. After your free case, you'll be part of the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment, so you can try it and see what you think. And if it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's www.wine52.com forward slash dark to claim your case today. In 1977, at just 17 years old, Richard Ramirez was ready to act out one of the violent stories his cousin Mike had told him about. And he knew just where to set the scene. A local hotel was just the place to find unsuspecting victims for his twisted desires. My first job was in a hotel and I can tell you this guy has got some gumption to do what happens next. So whilst two guests were making themselves at home in their room, they're on holiday, the husband pops out to the car to get something and at that moment Richard decides to go into the room where the wife is waiting alone and attempts to rape her. The husband comes back just in time and beats the shit out of Richard. The husband comes in uh, and he sees what's going on and basically beats Richard Ramirez to a bloody pole. But this couple, they're from out of town, they're, they're on holiday. They, they don't want to follow this up, they don't want to, to pursue this case. The couple decided not to press charges a lucky break for Richard. After this, Richard's troubling behaviour began to take an unpredictable turn. He found comfort in unorthodox places. So he's dirty, he's unkempt, he's sleeping in graveyards. He's increasingly kind of going over to the dark side. 
And the things that appeal to him are things that most people would find really odd and really bizarre, devil worship, that sort of thing. So he's gone on this trajectory now, and I think that's only going to go one way. At age 18, Richard headed to California, which would later become his hunting ground. He settled into a life on the fringes of society in downtown Los Angeles, filling his days, robbing houses and doing drugs. Now, Richard had been exposed to drugs at a young age and by this time was no stranger to the culture. He's with all the runaways and the throwaways. He's immersed in a a drug subculture. So he had no brakes on him before, really, but now he's completely off the rails and he does become Richard Ramirez, the, the serial killer. Five years later, he would claim his first victim in what would become a crazy 14-month killing spree. On June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was found stabbed to death in her Los Angeles home. There were indications she had been sexually assaulted and the knife wounds to her neck were so severe she'd almost been decapitated. Almost being decapitated must be fucking horrible. Well, I hate to think how much of that she actually experienced. Yeah. Because I don't know how long it would take to, at least in the neck, the chances are he probably got an artery pretty pretty yeah. quickly. But fucking hell, that's a, a, a horrib, horrific way to go. Yeah. And this was just the beginning of Richard's reign of terror. Here's Liz on what she thought made him make the jump from robbery to murder. In terms of what made Richard Ramirez kill, I think it was an escalation of behaviour. So he's been robbing, he's been burglarising people's houses, he has got access to people in their homes. And I think when you have that access and an opportunity presents itself and you are the type of person who gets off on violence, who doesn't feel bad about hurting other people, then you are somebody who is likely to take advantage of that opportunity when it presents itself. So I think it is, it's a gradual escalation of behaviour. Six months after the death of Ginny Vincow, Richard was in custody, but this wasn't for murder, this was for car theft. He was convicted of stealing a car and ended up serving 36 days in prison. Once released, Richard was ready to kill again. In one night, he attacked three women inside their own homes with a handgun. Two of the three women died, but one miraculously survived when the bullet ricocheted off a set of keys she had in her hand. All three attacks had a sexual motive in common. He's not someone who can form relationships with women, but he still wants women. He still wants to possess them and and have his way with them. So he's only going to do that through violent means. Well, Ramirez had as a specific part of his modus operandi to gain access uh, to his victims essentially by surreptitiously entering their home. He was at his core a burglar whose object felony was sexual murder. 11 days later, on March 27th, 1985, Richard was on the hunt again. He found his next victims, Vincent and Maxine Zazara, in Whittier, a city within the area of Los Angeles. It's pretty rough. So after breaking into their home, Richard shot Vincent in the head, killing him instantly. He then tied up the woman, Maxine, demanding money and valuables. He then shot her, Three times, he mutilated her, eventually gorging out her eyes and placing them in a jewellery box. Oh, my God. 
how is that a sexy th- like how is that a sexual thing i just i oh, like obviously sexual sadism like i think it's so horrific like so horrific that perhaps he's somehow told himself like because he has joined the dark side and has his satanic ways that this is like yeah the the more horrific the better also personally i feel like gouging out someone's eyes and putting them somewhere like i feel like because the eyes are the window to your soul like taking out your eyes is just taking away like a fucking huge part of your identity because it's like your eyes say so much don't they and i think it's just such a horrible disgusting thing to do to someone is take out their eyes yeah, I, I, know, I, just, I know there's lots of things you can do to a person, but it's, for me, there's something about when people have their eyes gouged out and I don't know, whatever. I just think it's, it's not nice. It's not nice. Vincent Zazara, a World War II veteran, was a well-respected member of the Whittier community where he ran a local pizzeria. His son, Peter, remembers his father fondly. Well, my dad was a uh, immigrant from Italy, came over in the 19... 19- 30s, mid-30s, something like that. And uh, he joined the army. He was in World War II. He was in Patton's army. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. He was a pretty accomplished person that that way. And uh, everybody respected him. Peter remembers hearing the news that his father and stepmother had been murdered. I was at home and I got a call. He told me what had happened. And we drove up. I was living in Pico Rivera. We drove up to Whittier. And I just remember um, that, how could it be possible? And I was just in a state of shock. And we met all the police outside. We were outside the front door with, uh, with my fiance at the time. And um, I wanted to go inside, but they wouldn't let us inside. I was already really upset. He said, one of the detectives said that it would just be make, make me more upset than I already was. So fucking sad. Yeah, it's horrible. And you just think, how terrible is it that not letting them see their loved ones is a gift? Mm. Like, and it is that they, you know, the police absolutely did the right thing there. You don't want to see this. You do not want to see that. No, that that's that's traumatizing shit. That is. Isn't yeah. It? Over thirty years later, Peter's he's still struggling. It ruined my life. It's hard for me to get on with my life. I've hardly screwed my life up a lot because of it. I would be a different person. I think. We were like kindred souls because he was also a veteran. I'm a veteran. And um, we were just really close in a, lot of, in a lot of ways like that. Although my dad was very, very tough on the outside, he's pretty uh, gentle on the inside, a lot like me that way. That's it. Like, with these things, with these cases, it's bad enough that these poor people are being tortured and murdered and all the rest, all the awful stuff, but... It's that the trauma that then left behind for the families, like this guy's life has changed. He has changed because he has lost his father and he's lost his stepmom and his life will never be the same again and he has to live for that for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's horrible. Fucking Richard. But Richard's killing spree was far from over. Between May and August of 1985, he continued to break into houses across Los Angeles, killing eight more people and attempting to kill another five. While the people of Southern California grew more and more fearful, investigators began to link the murders. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber knows more. There was no question 
that this is a crime really unique in its level of terror. It was unique in its level of terror for um, several important reasons. One, the lack of predictability about victim. You could not, as a citizen, say to yourself, I'm safe because I live in Beverly Hills, because there was no place you were safe in. And, and then what made it especially terrifying is the circumstances of the murders as they took place. One, that they took place often at night in the darkness, and two, they took place in a place that you ordinarily regard as the safest place in the universe, your personal home. That made this terror beyond belief. As far as we can tell, nothing attracted him to, to his victims in particular. He would often break into residences not knowing who was in the residence and end up, depending if it was men or women, killing them and having uh, uh, perpetrating sexual crimes against him. He was a man who had rampant chaotic impulses and basically attacked and killed whoever was in the room when his rage inflamed itself. Richard didn't even seem to favour a particular method of killing. He would murder by any means necessary and this made it particularly difficult for investigators to determine who had committed the gruesome crimes and if they were all linked. Dr Stuart Hamilton and Liz Yardley no more. He would stab, he would shoot, he would stamp, he would rape, he would force himself on people orally. Really, he just seemed to revel in acts of violence and violation. And it was quite a while uh, before the police actually realised that they had a serial killer on their hands. So here's somebody who terrorised Los Angeles and they didn't realise that it was the same person who was doing this till quite late on in the day. There were some similar details, though. Because Richard had begun worshipping Satan in his late teens, he'd often leave pentagrams at the scene of the crime. I'm so edgy. That's so goth, isn't I it? I know. By August 1985, Richard Ramirez had killed 13 people in Los Angeles. Richard was still managing to avoid the police, and at this point, the newspapers had dubbed him the Valley Intruder. Doesn't have the same ring to it as Night Stalker, does it? <laughs> no. Well, Ramirez would have thought at this point in time that, that he is an accomplished predator. Because he's not getting caught, the, the police don't even know who he is. Not because he's brilliant at what he does, but it's because the police aren't putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Because his MO is all over the place, he's killing people using different methods, he's targeting a, a whole host of victim groups. As fear of the Valley Intruder spread, Los Angeles residents grow increasingly fearful that they could be the next victim. San Francisco detective Frank Falzen, hearing the terror Los Angeles residents were feeling, hoped that the murders wouldn't spread further north. Uh, we were hearing in San Francisco at that time uh, about a Valley Intruder. The Valley Intruder was an individual that was breaking into homes in Southern California uh, predominantly the Los Angeles area, killing the husband, attacking the wife, uh, ransacking the house, and burglarizing uh, a lot of valuable property. Every law enforcement officer was aware, but this seemed to be a problem for the Los Angeles area. So the need for high attention in San Francisco wasn't happening. On the map, Los Angeles and San Francisco don't actually look that far away. Like, to me, it looks like us driving down to London, but it's actually well far away because I've done that drive before and it takes fucking hours and hours. 
Oh, does it? I spread I spread it over a few days. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, that's why, you know, when I did the, um, I did the West Coast twice, uh, Los Angeles to San Francisco. And yeah, you spread it, you spread it over a few days because it's a long drive. Wow. So he, so when they say, yeah, oh yeah, they went up to San Francisco or then they popped to this place. It's like, I'm thinking, fuck, they would have been on the road for hours and hours. It's not just a case of, oh, we just nipped out for the day. Nah. Like, okay. Unfortunately, Detective Frank was about to be proven wrong. In mid-August of 1985, Richard started branching out from Los Angeles. The Valley Intruder was moving on. And with this move would come a new nickname. So by August 1985, 25-year-old Richard Ramirez had killed 13 people and attempted to murder five others in the Los Angeles region of California. Because he was randomly breaking into homes, anyone could be his victim and the public were terrified. It was a summer of extreme heat and people were afraid to leave their doors unlocked, afraid to leave their windows open. Purchasing of guns went way up in the state of California. I would say every active police officer within the state of California was looking for Richard Ramirez. He would have been a big feather in any police officer's cap for his capture. Thinking about that, like how he didn't particularly have victims in mind, like a preference. Imagine if there was like reports of a serial killer in Norfolk and no one was safe. Like, you would be fucking terrified. Like, I would not leave the house after dark. I would, I'd feel so unsafe. Oh, yeah. Imagine how that was for those, for people in California. Especially, like, they don't have the, you know, it's not like they have the luxury of, like, ring doorbells or, um, you know, security cameras. Like, to have security cameras in your home wouldn't have been, like, a normal everyday occurrence like it is now. Um, and those extra sort of things, that extra technology that we have now to make you feel safe. Yeah, I can't... I literally, uh, as soon as I wake up in the middle of the night, which happens all the time, I wake up and I'm like, God, don't think about anybody breaking into your house right now. And I'm like, oh yeah, I've just thought about it, idiot. And I'm like, well, and every every single like You are bird, the biggest night worse. <laughs> I'm the fucking worst. And you know when you look over and it's like, ah, there's someone in my room. And it's just the dressing gown. <laughs> like, I, I do remember the time where there was that noise coming from the cupboard outside your bedroom door. That was an actual thing. What was it though? Ghost rat. Yeah, ghost rat. It was ghost rat everywhere. It was, I think it was actually a squirrel trapped in the eaves of my house. Oh, that's sad. Well, no, it wasn't because it peeked out of this cupboard. That was the door was moving. I was convinced it was a ghost. There was a whole thing. It was a really big deal. Um, it's probably one of my most entertaining Instagram stories. I'm quite proud of it. But yeah, I didn't. I literally didn't sleep at all because I woke up in the middle of the night. My husband was working nights at the time, and I heard someone coming up my stairs, and I was like, "Fuck it, fuck everything that we've worked for in my night terrors and stuff." Like, it's it. We're here now, guys. Like. It's happening. Someone's in my house. Because I, like, I text Baker, I'm like, are, are you home? And he was like, no. And I was like, there is someone in this house. And he was like, get out. I'm like, I'm fucking naked. I'm three stories up. You think I'm just going to let someone like run around my house? I don't fucking think so, mate. And I'm like, put on a t-shirt, no pants, because I think it's much scarier to come at someone who's invading your house with no pants on. Because they're going to be like, whoa, she's got no pants on. Genitals. And I've got a hockey stick. I'm like, someone's in my fucking house. Like, oh, that's happening. And the terror that went through me. 
was bad but I was like, I'm gonna stand up for myself because I know obviously they're gonna kill and rape me because I'm at home by myself and that's how my brain works so I'm there I'm ready to defend myself and go down swinging and I go and I check there's no one there and realize the cupboard outside my bedroom door that cupboard door that I've never touched is open fuck's sake the intruders in there they're hiding in there oh my god and I sit and I just watch it because it's like when there's a spider in the room and you're like, I need to know where it is at all times. So I sit and I just watch it. And for about four hours, I'm sat there watching this door and it started moving again. And I'm like, fuck, it's happening. It's happening. This guy. And I just already decided it wasn't an actual intruder. It was a ghost. And then I go, I walk towards the door and I just see one solitary eye looking out. And I was like, is that like a, is that like a lock? Is that a bit of the door mechanism that's like fallen off? And I sort of creep towards it and my head gets closer to the door. I'm like, I thought it was magnets at the top and the bottom of the door. What's this like locking mechanism falling off its... And then it moved. <laughs> and I was like... Ah! 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 And, and, then, on, uh, and on next episode of Danny Can't Sleep, we have the time that her dog licked her face. But yeah, it's really horrifying being at home, regardless, at night time. Night time makes everything scarier. That was the moral of that story. And the, 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 with the knowledge of a serial killer on the loose that was breaking into people's houses, doing horrific things, I can imagine it being a really tense time. There was ghost rats everywhere. Yep. Police were working hard to catch the killer, increasing their street presence and enlisting help of the FBI Special Task Force. News of the Valley intruder attacks flooded the news with Los Angeles residents fearfully following the story. Aware of the growing media spotlight on his crimes, Richard moved north to San Francisco. It would be here that he would claim his first victim outside of Los Angeles. Here's Detective Frank. It was a Saturday morning. Uh, My partner, Carl Klotz, and I were the on-call homicide team, and we received a call to respond to Eucalyptus Street out by the San Francisco Zoo. Uh, There was a murder, so we responded out there and the crime scene that we witnessed uh, was atrocious. The husband had been shot and killed while he was asleep in bed. Uh, The wife had been removed to the San Francisco Emergency Hospital. She had been raped, shot, and left for dead. The intruder had gone into the refrigerator, eaten their food, drew uh, satanic symbols, the pentagram, on the walls in the house. He vomited after he ate their food, and then he masturbated on their carpet. A very sick crime scene, uh, indicating a very disturbed mind. The San Francisco victims were 66-year-old Peter and 62-year-old Barbara. What a fucking shit show! My God! My mouth is a gate. He violated that household in every way possible. Yeah, you're right. That's the only way to describe it. It's a complete and utter violation of everything. Those poor people. Uh, These were just a lovely older couple living a peaceful life, never expecting to be attacked while they were asleep in bed. Both my partner, we had seen an awful lot in our time on the police force but we were both moved beyond normal for a homicide scene. Detective Frank began investigating the couple's murder, unaware that their death may be linked to the gruesome cases he had heard about from LA. That afternoon, after this initial crime scene visit, 
My partner and I went back to the office and we put out an all points bulletin. This is an alert up and down the state of California regarding all the information that we had. And one of the key things that we had was that our victims were shot with a 22 revolver. And we had the slug for comparison. A very alert, active sergeant in the Glendale Police Department that was working the Valley Intruder case, a man by the name of John Perkins, John calls us and says, you might want to check the Valley Intruder. It's, he always uses a 22 caliber revolver. That connection there put us into the Los Angeles cases that particular day, uh, August 18th, 1985. With his hunting grounds expanding beyond the Valley region, the newspapers had renamed Richard Ramirez the Night Stalker. All of a sudden, uh, the media blew this case up to be something very, very big, which it was. And now we had a link with Barbara and Peter Pan in San Francisco. So the murder count was going up every weekend. And people all over the state of California were very, very frightened. Detective Frank began looking into other recent crimes in the San Francisco Bay Area and found another burglary report that had a strong resemblance to the Night Stalker's break-ins. In the report, an intruder had climbed through a bathroom window. The only person in the house was the young niece of the household. She was 16. When she heard someone in the house, she sneaked downstairs and hid in a cupboard. Luckily for her, he didn't find her. He stole jewellery, but as Detective Frank explains, Richard stole from the wrong house. The big break in the case came is when this bracelet with the serial number ends up in Lompoc, California, turned in by a confidential informant of a police sergeant on the Lompoc Police Department. So basically, the husband had put his social security number on his wife's jewellery. So when Richard stole it, they were able to trace it. Oh, that's smart, isn't it? Yeah. I know that's not why he's done it, but like, well no, done. No, that, that is man. why he's did it. So if anyone did steal the valuable jewellery, they'd be able to trace yeah. where it is. But like, not say that they could catch a fucking serial killer, you no. know what I mean? Yeah, that's, like, why that's why I picked the wrong house to rob. While Detective Frank headed to Lompoc to interrogate the informant, Richard Ramirez was already moving on to Mission Viejo, California. There he stole a car before carrying out another attack on a young engaged couple. Richard first shot the man in the head and then raped the young woman. This is mad. Both of them survived the traumatic incident. No! Yep. The woman was able to recount the incident in great detail and she provided investigators with detailed description of their assault. Perhaps the most chilling detail she gave was that her attacker said right before he left their house, tell them you've met the Night Stalker. Fuck off. Okay, so he is losing it here. This what? Is, this is where it's going downhill. This is just it. I think they say on... Um, I know I always still talk about criminal minds, but um, when they attach like a name, it elevates their actions because they have this, yeah, now I'm getting this attention. I'm getting this, I'm becoming this like persona. You've just met the Night Stalker. Fuck off. 
From her description, police sketch artists were able to provide newspapers with an image of the man who had been terrorising the public for months. Police could only hope that someone would recognise the man they were after. Meanwhile, in Lompoc, thanks to the social security number found on the bracelet, Detective Frank had tracked down a potential informant. He remembers questioning him in the back of an unmarked car. I said, your friend Rick is the Night Stalker, the man that's been killing in Los Angeles and killing in San Francisco. I don't want anybody to die this weekend. We need your help. But the informant wasn't planning on giving up the full name of the man who sold him the bracelet, at least not at first. So I'm not giving you nothing about my friend Rick. Do you understand me, you effing punk? I'm not giving you anything. And I could feel my blood beginning to boil. And I guess I, I rolled up my fist and I looked at him and he goes, oh, tough guy, tough guy. You want to fight me? And he put his hands up. And I started over the top. And at that point, I don't know if I would have finished that punch or not, but I was going to hit him with everything I had. And he fell back in the seat and he threw up his arms in a cross manner and he screamed, Richard Ramirez. When we heard that name, I, I literally collapsed in the front seat of the police car. Frank Falzon is a beefy dude. And he if he raises a fist at you, you can you're gonna fucking tell him what he wants to hear. Fucking good on him though. Yeah. Like what an absolute prick do you have to be to be like, uh yeah, I'm not telling you nothing. Like to protect Punk. a guy to protect a guy that's been fucking raping and murdering his way around the city. Like, fuck off. We know who the real punk is here. That guy. That guy. Detectives finally had a name for the night stalker. And at the same time, detectives investigating the attack in Mission Viejo had pulled a fingerprint from the car Richard had stolen with a matching print and his likeness matching the description by the surviving victim, detectives were getting closer to catching the Night Stalker. On August 30th, 1985, the mugshot on file from Richard Ramirez's first arrest in December 1984 was released to all media across California. Retired FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon spoke about getting information to the public. When a serial killer is moving around geographically, it's really important to enlist the, the, the aid of the media, which can get the word out, uh, sketches and, and things like that, out to the public because the public becomes an asset to you. And then oftentimes, these cases are resolved by somebody recognizing the person. The next morning on August 31st, Richard, fresh from visiting his brother in Tucson, Arizona, boarded a Greyhound bus. He had no idea that back in L.A., he was a newly wanted man. Uh-uh. Saturday morning, Richard Ramirez's picture was front page in every newspaper in the state of California. But the people of Los Angeles decided they had waited long enough for authorities to apprehend Richard, so they took matters into their own hands. When he arrives back in L.A., bearing in mind his picture has been circulating, a group of people spot him... And, well, they beat the shit out of him. You can call that a citizen's arrest. The police come to break up the literal bundle of flying fists and arrest the Night Stalker. At first, police didn't even know who they had in the back of their car. This one cop looks real close. He's, Jesus, 
It's the Night Stalker, it's Richard Ramirez. He goes out over the air and announces they have the Night Stalker in custody. Yo, boys, guess what we got back in cab six and two four? We got the Night Stalker across all the radios. Do you reckon it went like that? Like, guys, you won't believe this. We've got him. We've got him. We've got the Night Stalker. I don't know why they're in New York. Well now. done, boys. Well done, boys. And then the cheers and sirens, the whole city. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We got because him. Also, piece of shit. You'd fucking know, as when you saw him, he's a scary looking dude. Like, his sketch, yeah. the sketch, the mugshot, they're every sort of picture and sketch of him that I've ever seen is fucking scary. And it's not even like, you know how some people are scary to look at um, because you know what they've done. He's, it's not that. Like, he's gone. He's got a really, like, hollowed out face. His teeth are all crooked and um, dirty and sort of sharp looking even. Mm. Like, he is a terrifying dude to look at. After 14 months of fear... California could rest a little easier. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was finally done terrorising the Golden State. On August 31st, 1985, Richard was charged with 13 murders and five attempted murders in Los Angeles County between June 1984 and August 1985. His victims ranged in the age between 16 and 83. Three were men and 15 were women. Retired FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon recalls what it was like to interview the 25-year-old killer. Normally, when I would interview somebody, I would try to empathize with them or get them to break down emotionally about their crimes and to confess or to, you know, admit to some wrongdoing. With, an, with a psychopath, you're not going to get that. They don't have the ability to break down emotionally. And so you have to approach interviewing a psychopath like Ramirez much differently. You have to play his game, stroke his ego, um, you know, uh, almost uh, co uh, compliment him on his individuality and, 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 and what he was able to get away with. Ramirez was a narcissist who believed he was omnipotent. He, he believed that he could fool detectives that had been, you know, specially trained. And he believed that, that his ability to fool them was not simply a product of his own genius, but, but a product of the fact that he was aligned with, acting in conspiracy with Satan himself. When Richard finally went to trial, at the preliminary hearing, he pleaded not guilty. The courtroom erupted at the claim. Here's Jeff. On the first day, he entered and held up his hand. He had a pentagram written on his hand. And uh, he shouted out at the top of his voice, Hail Satan. His position as Lucifer's assistant was now to be glorified in front of the world's media, and particularly the American media. He was a celebrity on the same level as Manson. He was uh, good-looking and was very aware of it very aware of his female admirers in the court and outside, very aware that he cut a rather dramatic figure. You can see that the courtroom is essentially a stage for him. So he wears dark sunglasses, he, he dresses all in black. He is this kind of pseudo-celebrity and, and he, he really is enjoying it. He's lapping up the attention. So, so this is somebody who, who has attained a kind of celebrity status because of the awful things that he's done. Who the fuck would 
be an admirer of someone like that. It's so gross. Just all of it, like all of it. He's like, he he held up the pentagram on his head. Fuck off, mate. That's such and an then eye he, roll, isn't it? Oh, and then he, oh, he shouted at the top of his voice, help hail fuck off like it's just it's gross isn't it it's like a filmy coating on the back of my throat like it's just ugh. i remember when uh when i used to hang out like at the forum or at at the castle and you yeah all the goths doing like shit like that and you're just like oh just a fucking phase i'm so goth (laughs) i drew a pentagram on the back of on the back of my hand i'm so i'm so goth but like um do you remember it it reminds me like david blaine when he drew whatever was it the eye on his palm and he just used to like open his palm and everyone would be like whoa david blaine i just i always think trials like that i know everybody is so interested in it and like he terrorized the public the public have a right to know what's going on but like by televising it by publicizing it they're just giving him what he wants like they'd have they'd have got more out of him and like really pissed him off literally just like the jury fucking lawyers only essential only essential people close everything down like yep. give him no attention. He was lapping that what? up, weren't he? How it's gross. You're gross, Richard Ramirez. Like gross. Just there's ugh, ugh, ugh. Even with such a solid case, some of the families of victims found the idea of attending the trial too much to bear. Peter Zazara, son of one of the victims, did not want to go. I was offered to go to the trial, but I didn't want to go because I didn't give a, a rat's ass about him. All I cared about was my dad and Maxine. And besides, I would have done something crazy because I was pretty upset. I'd have been in there for one minute. I would, I would have, I'd have, I'd have been arrested myself because I would have gone off. There's no way I could have done it. There's no possible way. In fact, I don't even know how people do it. To tell you the truth, I don't. Why would you want to do it? Why would you want to look at some scumbag who did something like that? Don't blame him. Yeah, I'm with him. Oh, that's exactly how I would feel. Oh, I would say that is easy not to say in it. That is how I feel, though, now. Yeah. yeah, especially, I think, and it is that urge, that knowing this guy doesn't care about what he's done, so why should I give a shit about yeah. him? I give a shit about I his actions. I'm not going to give him the satisfaction to look at me, knowing what he's done to my family. Yeah, and he would get satisfaction out of seeing people suffering still. Yeah, because he gets a kick out of it. Fucking feel, Makes him feel powerful, doesn't it? It's so gross. I know I keep saying it, I'm sorry, everyone, but it's so <laughs> gross. <laughs> It took three whole years for the trial to begin, with both of the prosecution and defence having a lot of work on their plates. Among the evidence were stolen goods from many of Richard's crime scenes and a gun that linked all the murders. The gun belonged to Richard. The defence argued that all the evidence was circumstantial. What the fuck? And the trial would be delayed even further after one of the jury members died. But finally, in 1989, the jury came to a verdict. Richard Ramirez was found guilty of all 43 charges against him, including 13 murders, five attempted murders and four rapes. He remained unfazed right up until the very end. Here's Rex. A lot of his time at the trial was spent engaging in what I call bravado behaviour. The message that he sent out throughout the course of the trial is... There's really nothing you can do to me. I'll let you have your trial. It'll have its outcome. Nothing will be changed because I will soon merge with Satan. 
These were his words after hearing his sentencing. Ready? I don't know. No. Yes. Yes. No. Yes. Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off! (laughs) (laughs) He's so annoying! Richard was sentenced to death and sent to San Quentin prison to wait out his sentence. He would never face trial for his other crimes in San Francisco, but Detective Frank Falzen was finally able to charge him. The decision not to try Richard for the murders in San Francisco was a very deliberate one. The large geographical range of the crimes, as I said earlier, because Los Angeles and San Francisco are quite far apart, caused jurisdictional issues and prosecutors didn't want to do anything to jeopardise the death penalty case. Now, this is where it steps up in terms of ludicrousy. Richard had a huge amount of fan mail to his cell on death row from girls. They just loved him. And he even gets married. Ramirez became a celebrity in his own right. And he had groupies. He had, he had marriage proposals. He had women that wanted to come and visit him at the prison. One woman in particular, Doreen Loy, wrote Ramirez 75 letters from 1985 through his trial. And in 1988, he proposed to her. They married in St. Quentin, where he was incarcerated in 1996. No. You've got to have some fucked up kinks to be obsessing and lusting over a guy like this. Who fucking allowed this? Who fuck? He's in prison! He's in prison for murdering loads of people! Who allowed this? How did legally this allowed to happen? I know, I'm boxing out the thing. I'm as far away from the microphone as I can get. I'd turn you down. I'm sorry. How, who let this happen? Why do I understand women who have a thing for murdery, rapey guys? There's so so much about this. That's just the fucking worst. I do feel like Doreen may have been lonely so i don't buy a fucking cat but get some trolls i don't have a garden full of gnomes to fulfill marry a fucking serial what judge signed off on that i'm so i'm enraged my rage is i am untethered and my rage knows no bounds (laughs) On June 7th, 2013, Richard Ramirez died before he could face the death penalty for his crimes. He died of complications related to B-cell lymphoma. He had spent 23 years on death row after taking the lives of 13 people. He was a truly depraved individual who had no interest or concern for anyone in his path. And they were simply fodder for his great and aggravated ego. I have and can never have anything but the greatest sympathy for them. What do I think of Richard Ramirez? Not much. This man was a loser. Society, it was our loss that he was ever born. His death probably gave relief to so many, so many of his surviving family members and victims that he had murdered. Uh, His death I don't believe was mourned by anybody except other satanic worshippers. This was a very sick, sick person. And that 
was the night stalker, Richard Ramirez. What a prick. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Daddy Howard. We're travelling a little closer to home. To look into the crimes of the horrible bus stop killer, Levi Belfield. How close to home are we talking? Sprouston. There's a bus stop just outside. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of these themes in this episode, please check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios.